Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We are uh, moving through our summer series through the epistle of James, written by Jesus' little brother, and a really interesting perspective on what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be the people of God. And um, I would kind of summarize the book of James again um, like this. Have you ever heard somebody play an instrument, maybe a guitar or piano that was out of tune? It's a horrible sound, right? And no matter how skilled they are or how talented they are, if the instrument is out of tune, it's just not going to sound good. And I would say that the book of James is essentially about what does it sound like when your life and your faith are in tune? And this morning, he gives a few examples of what it might look like when the way we live is out of tune with what we believe, right? When our faith and our actions aren't synced up, uh, he, he says that's a problem, and your life will never play the beautiful song that, that Jesus intends for it to play. And so uh, the summary verse for this morning is James chapter 2. Uh, And we'll just focus in for a moment here on verse 24. James 2, 24, he says, You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Okay, if you are familiar even somewhat with the Christian gospel, then this sounds like it's out of tune, with the message of Jesus and the apostles. And I would say this is a confusing verse, a confusing passage, and if you aren't confused, then you probably aren't paying attention, right? So um, this doesn't sound like the gospel of Jesus that we're familiar with. Uh, Specifically, we could go to a place in Paul's writings, Paul who is this huge preacher of the gospel of grace, saying repeatedly that we aren't saved by good works or by good deeds or anything we do, but we are saved or made right with God simply by faith in the grace of Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, is a famous summary of the gospel of salvation according to Paul, where he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul is pretty clear here that we are not saved by works, but by faith alone. And James is pretty clear here that we are saved by works and not by faith alone. Both of them are pretty crystal clear. And so the problem for us is, should we listen to James or should we listen to Paul? Is James right or is Paul right? And the answer, of course, is yes, right? Um, And here's, here's how we'll go about it. If you look at things with one eye closed, what happens? What do you lose? You lose depth depth perception, right? You need two eyes looking at the same thing in order to have depth perception because each eye is looking at the same object from a slightly different perspective. 
And as a result, you're not limited to just one eye or the other, but when your eyes work in tune with one another, you get a fuller and clearer picture of reality or of truth. So maybe you've seen this meme on social media recently, and I think it's a fascinating way to lay it out, going, is this object circular or is it a square? Well, it depends on which direction you're looking at it from, right? Depends on your point of view or on your perspective. And the reality is that it's both a circle and a square. That two things that seem to be opposed to one another are in fact able to both be true at the same time. This is true in lots of areas of life, but as followers of Jesus and as people of the word, then we should actually be especially good at this. Christians should be able to be, or should be really good at being able to hold seemingly contradictory or opposed ideas at the same time. If you think about so much of Christian doctrine, Christian belief, it's full of these kind of paradoxes. Think about the fact that God is both three and one. That Jesus is both God and human. That the Bible was both written by God and by humans. Uh, The kingdom of God that Jesus declared is already here and not yet. And we could go on and on about all these paradoxes that make up the foundation of our faith in Christ and his kingdom. And when we look at these various objects from multiple perspectives at once, we actually get a fuller picture of truth or reality. And so I would argue when it comes to this question of how is it that we are made right with God? How is it that we are reconciled to God and find ourselves in good standing with him? Paul and James are asking that question or looking at that object from two different perspectives. And therefore, their answers look radically different, but when we see them in tune with one another, we actually get a more robust picture of the truth. And I would think that there are some people, and I know there are some people throughout church history that have really struggled with what James is writing here because it sounds so contradictory to the gospel of grace. And as we've said, even famously Martin Luther questioned whether the book of James even belonged in the Bible at all. And the problem is they're only looking at this with one eye. But when we see with both eyes, we understand that first of all, James and Paul are both much smarter than any of us. Right, And they have a much deeper and clearer understanding of Jesus and his gospel than any of us. We think that James probably even was familiar with the writings of Paul and knew how Paul went about articulating the gospel and the nature of salvation and grace and faith and all that kind of stuff. And so instead of saying James must be ignorant of the true gospel, I wonder if we would actually give him the credit to say, he probably knew exactly what he was doing. And I think he's having fun. Sometimes as teachers, we like to mess with our students, right? Sometimes we like to create little crises, little intellectual dilemmas in order to create an attentive and teachable crowd. I think that's exactly what James is doing. He's trying to be provocative. He's messing with us by closing one eye and describing it from a different perspective. 
And so one of the things that I think we can say is that when it comes to this idea of justification, of a right standing before God, a right relationship with God, Paul and James are looking at that word from different perspectives and they're using that word in different ways. And we have the same, we have the same thing. When we talk about the word justified, it, we often talk about it as being made right, or more literally, being made just. To be justified is to be made right or to be just. But we also use that word on the back end to prove or to give evidence of being made right or being made just. So when we say, how do you justify that argument, we're saying, how do you explain it? How do you prove it? We're not asking somebody to make it true. We're asking somebody to show us that it's true. And we use the word justify for both things both the act of being made true or right or just, and the act of demonstrating or proving that something is right or true or just. And Paul uses the word justify in that first sense of saying, here's how the gospel works. Here's how we are made right and given right standing with God. And James uses the word justify on the second sense that here's how that, here's how that faith is justified. Here's how that faith is demonstrated or proven. Here's the evidence for the justification. They use the word justify for both. And so James isn't saying that our works make us right with God. He's saying that our works prove or demonstrate that we have already been made right with God. And after all, this isn't so different than anything Paul said himself. If you go to the next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, let me read the whole thing now. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, that's the gospel of grace, not saved by works. But then verse 10, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All of a sudden, Paul and James sound like they're in tune. And when we see this question, this object, from both perspectives, we get a more robust picture of the truth. And so I would sum up this whole thing by saying, it's not that we're saved by good works, it's that we're saved for good works. We're saved for good works, not by them. And Paul is primarily asking the question of how are we saved? And James is asking the question, what are we saved for? What are we saved for? And so throughout the course of this passage, James uses several different examples, kind of a hypothetical situation where a person in need comes to the family of Christ, starting there in verse 16. And or verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So James is saying that a mere profession of faith isn't a complete faith. Remember that throughout the course of this book, he's repeatedly casting a vision for a 
a robust and complete, a perfected or a mature faith in Jesus. And he's saying to simply say, yes, I believe in God, I believe in Bible, I believe in Jesus. He's saying that's great, but that's not a complete faith. That's not a mature faith. In fact, he would even use the language of saying, that's actually a dead faith that's just, that's just lip service. But true faith is going to express itself in the purpose of that faith and the purpose of that grace, which is a life that's trans- transformed and poured out in good works, and especially towards those who need love the most. And so, yes, we are made righteous. We are justified by the grace of God through faith. But our righteousness is known through our works. The true righteousness, true faith will show up in a way of life. And so even after many, many years, Martin Luther wrestling with this idea finally comes to see the full picture of what Paul and James are saying and famously says, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. And James himself seems to have this really beautiful vision of the grace of God and the role, the role it plays in our conversation. Even if we go back to verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? How does James describe our receiving of God's kingdom, our receiving of the life of God? And he says, it's not something we earn, it's something we inherit. Think about the difference between wages and an inheritance. The difference between a worker and an heir. Wages are based on what we do. We receive compensation for the work that we do. And he goes, it's not a wages compensation conversation. He goes, it's an inheritance error conversation. Wages are based on what you do. Inheritance is received based on who you are. When you receive money from a grandparent or a parent who dies or something like that, there's nothing you did to earn that inheritance. It simply comes to you because of your relationship. And that's, that's the picture that even James himself has here. He's saying that our standing with God isn't based on our works or our wages, but it's based on the fact that we are co-heirs with Christ and we inherit the kingdom, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. And so then what does it look like to move from the question of how are we saved to what are we saved for? That's the question James is wrestling with. He's going to let Paul and others get into the mechanics of how salvation works. And he's going, yeah, once you are saved then, once you are justified and made right with God, what's that salvation for? Why is God reconciling us to himself? We know what we're saved from, but what are we saved to? And he specifically throughout this passage mentions an active faith that shows up in a life marked by caring for the poor, for the marginalized, 
for the disadvantaged, for the outcast, for the rejected, for those in need. He says we are saved for these good works by being a community marked by compassion and justice, by being a community marked by sacrificial co-suffering love for the least of these. That kind of love, that kind of lifestyle isn't what justifies us. It's what we're justified for. It's what we're created for, for a life poured out in good works. So my favorite, one of my favorite theologians, an Australian guy named Ben Myers, sums up the book of James like this. Faith is a picture taken by the beggar at your door, not a selfie. What is our salvation for? Well, if you've been around Antioch for any length of time, you know that our summary of the gospel comes from several of Paul's uh, letters where he talks about the mission of God and the vocation of God's people being the reconciliation of all things, the restoration of all of creation to God's original goodness. That in Christ, yes, God is saving sinners and he's adopting people like you and me by his grace and out of his love into his family. But he's also inviting us to join him on his mission. So we are both the recipients of this gospel of reconciliation, but we are also then called to be agents of it as well, or what Paul would call ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Salvation is about recovering our true identity and vocation through what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And it's the good news that in Christ, we can once again bear the image of the God we were made to represent in the world, and we can exercise wise and just dominion over his good creation. So salvation begins with this pardon, this forgiveness, this justification, or this new life, but it leads us to this new way of being and doing in the world. And that way of being and doing is marked by things like justice and mercy, compassion and love as we walk humbly with God in Christ. And so I think if there's one message I could broadcast to the evangelical church in our country, it's that salvation is not the end in and of itself. We are saved from sin, from hell, and from death. But that's only half of the good news. We know what we've been saved from, but what are we saved to? What are we saved for? We've got something to do. Not to make ourselves justified, but as an evidence of the justification we've already received. And so again, James famously here warns that if we separate faith from works, what we believe from how we live, then we end up with a dead religion and a meaningless faith. 
that does no good for this world desperately in need of the reconciling grace of Jesus. I think we can wrestle with this at an individual level, and we have been over the last several weeks as we've dug into James asking, where are the places of contradiction between my faith and life? Where am I out of tune personally? Where am I saying one thing and doing another in my life? And I want us to continue to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those places where we're in need of transformation and growth in our own lives. But I also think we can zoom out and look at this as a big picture. And something really interesting happened a little over 100 years ago within American Christianity, Protestantism specifically. And it's what's known as the modernist controversy, when essentially the Protestant church began to divide more, more polarized into two camps. And so on one side, we have what we call the evangelicals, and on the other side of Protestantism, we have mainline Protestants, right? Within our city, we have both kinds of Protestant Christians represented. And central to that division was the question of Scripture, And the evangelicals, I would argue, were right on the question of Scripture. Is it inspired by God? Is it authoritative and just as relevant to our lives today as it was when it was first written thousands of years ago? Will we hold ourselves to a high view of Scripture and live in submission to what God has revealed uh, revealed of himself in the Bible? And evangelicals said, yes, we are going to be people of the book. We're going to be people who are known for teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel and sharing our faith and trying to lead as many people as possible into Jesus. And on the other hand, the mainline Protestants said, we're we're thinking about the Bible differently now that it needs to be reinterpreted and re-understood and reapplied in this new world that we find ourselves in. And so it's still valuable and it still has purpose, but we are not going to submit ourselves uh, to it line by line, word for word. But what we are going to do is figure out how do we do justice? How do we care for the poor? How do we help the sick, the elderly, the disabled, the minorities, the oppressed? Because that's what true faith looks like. And so for the last hundred years, Protestantism in the United States has been marked by this polarized divide. That on the right, you have the evangelicals with a high view of scripture, a high view of the gospel of grace, a high view of evangelism. And then on the left, you have mainline Protestants with a high view of God's heart for this world, for the poor, for the hurting. And what you see here at a mass level, now millions and millions of people, is exactly the kind of thing that James is warning against. You cannot separate the proclamation of salvation and the doing of justice and be true to the pattern given to us by the apostles and by the prophets and by Jesus himself. That it's not the preaching of God's word versus the living of God's heart that we have to choose one or the other. But thankfully, 
what I'm witnessing in this world that I live in amongst pastors and teachers and church leaders and theologians is that more and more people are starting to see the false dichotomy. That we don't have to choose grace or works. We don't have to choose Paul or James. We don't have to choose the Bible or justice. But that we get to see all of it together as an essential and non-negotiable part of our faith and our calling and our mission. And so in verse 22... James says, you see, he's talking about Abraham, Abraham who obeyed God. His faith was expressed in obedience. He says that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete or mature or whole by what he did. That's the picture. Not faith versus actions, but faith and action working together. Not truth versus love. Not grace versus mercy. But opening both eyes and seeing the whole picture. So I've shown you this before, but it's been about a year. And if you're somewhat new to Antioch and you're trying to figure out what kind of church are we, what are we all about, I think this is one of the most helpful ways to uh, begin to unpack the vision and mission that God has given us and the kind of culture and the kind of disciples that we're trying to create here. And this is a little bit of a generalization. It always is going to be some caricaturization of of large groups, but I, I do think that this is part of the reality that we live in as American Protestants today. And on the left side, again, representing the mainline Protestants, we have theological liberalism. Don't take that word liberalism and read politics into it. Theological liberalism. And on the right side, representing evangelicals, we have fundamentalism. And so each of them looks at these various objects down the middle, and they each have one eye closed to paint with a broad brush here. And they see from one perspective So when the question of what is the gospel comes up, on the left side, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, meaning the gospel that Jesus himself preached. That's a good question. What gospel did Jesus proclaim? Well, the gospel writers tell us repeatedly that the gospel Jesus preached is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is coming to earth. God is making earth like heaven. That is the good news. But on the right side, the fundamentalists would say, what is the gospel? Well, it's the gospel about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel that we are saved and reconciled to God by grace through faith. One side focuses on the gospel of, the other on the gospel about. When it comes to the problem of sin in the world, Liberalism would focus on social sin, systemic injustices, the powers that be, the empire, the brokenness of the system. And and fundamentalists would focus on personal sin, questions of immorality, unfaithfulness, personal brokenness, and say the gospel is primarily addressing that. When it comes to mission, what is it that we are all about in the world? What is it that God's got his people doing? On the left, they would say it's about social justice. 
It's about making things right the way they ought to be. And on the right, they would say it's about evangelism. It's about proclaiming the good news of of salvation by grace through faith and converting or seeing as many people converted as possible. When it comes to the church, what is our work? On the left, they would say it's showing Jesus. And our witness is about demonstration of the gospel, doing good works. And on the right, they would say that church is about preaching Jesus, teaching the Bible, declaring the gospel with the right words, speaking truth. When it comes to the question of salvation, on the left, they would say salvation is primarily about freedom from suffering. Good news to the poor. Freedom for the captives. And on the right, they would say it's primarily about freedom from sin, forgiveness, and redemption at a personal level. When it comes to Jesus, the work of Christ, and the nature of Christ, liberalism would emphasize the life of Christ, seeing Jesus as a teacher, as a role model, as somebody to base our lives on and focus on his humanity, how he's just like us. And in fundamentalism, the focus on Christ would be on his death, on his sacrifice, on his suffering, what he accomplishes in his death. Fundamentalism spends very little time talking about the life and teaching of Jesus, and a lot of time about the death and sacrifice of Jesus. And at the same time, really a high view of how Jesus is unlike us as the Son of God. For liberals, the ministry priority is physical needs, immediate needs. Those that are suffering in the present tense, what would Jesus have us do and be for them? And the ministry priority for fundamentalists is spiritual needs, eternal needs. Yes, this life isn't your home, this isn't forever. So is your heart right with God? The definition or the paradigm of holiness and liberalism is doing good, doing good works, being generous, being kind, being hospitable, living justly. And holiness and fundamentalism isn't so much about doing good as it is about being good. The things that we avoid, the things that we don't do, the things that we set ourselves apart from, a pursuit of personal holiness. And finally, the vision of the kingdom of God and liberalism, the emphasis is that it's already here. That Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. It's closer than you think. That God's new world has broken in through Christ. And in fundamentalism, the kingdom of God is not yet. It's an emphasis on the future, on what will one day come to be. Now again, these are, these are generalizations But in my observation, this does get to the heart of why we are such a divided people as the church of Jesus in our country. Why there's so much controversy. Why if you want to focus on any of these things in conversation, in relationships, in social media, in your small group or something like that, that it's going to create division. It's going to create misunderstanding and confusion. And so the question that we've asked as a church, and some of you have asked this of me and our other leaders in various ways, not so much are we a liberal church or a fundamentalist church, but we're trying to make sense of how are we fitting in to this big thing? And what's the answer? We're not choosing either one. 
we are committed to the whole gospel, which would look like this. It's the gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus, a gospel that addresses personal and social sin. It's a people who are marked by evangelism and social justice, that we're committed to showing Jesus and preaching Jesus. We're all about demonstration and declaration, works and words. We rejoice in the freedom from sin and the freedom from suffering. We embrace the life and death of Christ, the humanity and deity of Christ. We go about seeking to meet the physical immediate needs and the spiritual eternal needs of our neighbors. We want to live lives marked by doing and being good, and we announce and celebrate and proclaim the good news of a kingdom that is already and not yet. Let's not fall into the trap of feeling like we want, need to choose one of the world's false categories, of feeling like that we need to choose a camp. And just like there's a tendency towards identity politics, there's also a tendency towards identity theology or identity church. That instead of being faithful to Christ and to his mission, we end up being more concerned about which group we belong to and how we can go about demonizing the opposite group. And it's ridiculous. And so, yes, Antioch is a weird church because we're committed to both. We want to be ambidextrous. We want to be committed to the preaching and declaration of God's word and the message of salvation by grace through faith. And we also are committed to speaking truth to power, to caring for the least of these, to addressing injustice and oppression wherever we find it. People whose lives are marked by a commitment to the historic Christian faith and at the same time are actively engaged in the culture, caring for those who need it the most. And we don't fit nicely into any category. We don't fit nicely into any political party. We embrace the whole gospel. And amongst our staff and leadership at the church, we are regularly participating in citywide Christian gatherings. And some of those are with the evangelical community of Bend in Central Oregon. And we come and we celebrate the good news that's being proclaimed about Jesus. And then we also spend time in these circles with the more progressive and liberal expressions of Christianity in Central Oregon, where we spend our time focusing on what does it look like to do justice to the immigrant, to the poor, to the imprisoned, to the oppressed. And we are one of the few churches that somehow shows up at both kinds of gatherings. And it's weird. And I'm good with that. Are you good with that? So let's not fall into the trap that James is describing here of choosing faith or works, but let us continue to pursue, empowered by the Holy Spirit as we follow Jesus as both our teacher and our savior, what it looks like when faith and works work together, that we may be a whole, complete, mature expression of Jesus 
to this city and around the world. We stand and pray with him. Lord Jesus, we can't thank you enough for the grace that you have shown us. That though we were once enemies of God, strangers to God, just like Abraham, we have now been made friends of God. What an incredible invitation and opportunity. So we thank you that you have saved us, not by our good works, but by yours. And ultimately, by your good work of laying down your life on the cross, out of love, that we might be justified. And so we receive that gift again that you have made and are making us righteous and just. Spirit, let that work continue in this congregation. Let us receive that message with conviction this morning. And we also pray that we wouldn't stop there but that by your spirit we'd be mobilized into a people that are doing justice, showing mercy and walking humbly with God in Christ. That we would be people that lament the brokenness in this world, lament the pain and suffering of humanity, and people who are willing to follow Jesus onto our knees and wash the feet of the world. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a taste of yourself through the bread and the cup this morning. That we would get an extra dose of your grace. Your grace that both cleanses us and empowers us for a life of service. We trust you. We pledge our allegiance to you and you alone. And pray that you, at any cost, would continue the good work you've started in us cleansing us from unrighteousness and forming us into your image for the glory of your name, for our good and for the joy of the world. In Jesus' name.